Hello, my name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, a medical oncologist and president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series of podcasts, I'm interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country, indeed in the world, to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. Welcome to the second episode in this series of Lung Cancer Voices podcast, where I'm chatting with my colleague here in Ottawa, Dr. Garth Nicholas, about some of the most important lung cancer trials in history and what we can learn from them and, and what we should be cautious about in, in over-interpreting them. And this comes from this monumental task of tweeting every day through Lung Cancer Awareness Month when Dr. Nicholas gave uh, a, a, a thread of of uh, tweets every day to explain to us and, and teach us about some of these really crucial trials and what, what's good about them and, and what should make us uh, just pause for thought. Um, so do go back and listen to the first episode if you, if you haven't. So Garth, welcome back for this second episode. Thank you. Previously, we talked about you know how you kind of got to do this and we talked about uh, lung cancer screening studies. Really early on in the month, November 2nd, you, you tweeted about you know, maybe the most famous Canadian lung cancer trial. Perhaps, yeah. Could you just jump in and, and just, why did you pick that and why is it really important in lung cancer history? Yeah, excellent question. So it's, so we are talking about uh, a trial that in Canada we call BR10. Uh, so this is a randomized study. I think I put this one early in the month, I think partly because my objective of trying to describe what a good-looking study should be, how a well-conducted study should be constructed, how uh, someone might go about reading a, a research paper, is really helped a lot by having a high-quality uh, example, right? And, and this is really a well-conducted study. It is, the design of the study is very straightforward and kind of an exemplar of a, of a randomized controlled trial. And also, uh, as you say, it's a, it's a significant Canadian contribution to, uh, to lung cancer treatment. Okay. So you did talk, I think, November 1st and November 2nd in, in the tweets about you know, what is randomization. Yeah. And, and on this one, you talked about a p-value for sure. interpreting studies. But maybe before we get to that, wh what was the BR10 study asking? What was the question it was sure. asking? So this is a randomized study of uh, chemotherapy in what we call the adjuvant setting. So people who were eligible for this study were people who had had localized lung cancers that were completely removed by surgery. Uh, and then the question was whether or not giving some chemotherapy after the operation would increase those people's chances of being cured. The idea, of course, is that despite good surgery, sometimes people do have recurrences of their cancer. What that must mean is that those people have some microscopic residual disease after the surgery, and giving people chemotherapy might uh, eradicate that microscopic metastatic disease, leading to more cures. So this study enrolled just about 500 people and randomly assigned them to either receive chemotherapy after their surgery or no chemotherapy, which would have been the standard of care at the time. And what the study showed was that over uh, several years of follow-up, five, six, seven years of follow-up, uh, more people remained alive in the arm that got chemotherapy compared to the arm that did not. So the addition of chemotherapy does increase people's likelihood of, of being cured of their cancer and of, and of survival in the long term. Okay. And the, the, the learning point for those who were following the, the thread for, for that day was a thing called a p-value. So, so, so if there are people who are kind of, uh, you know, not 
not not uh, you know medically trained who who find these studies and it says oh there's a p value is 0 0.0 this or it's 0 0.48 what could you explain to 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 them or us what what is a p value and why is it important sure so so the idea of a p value is a, when you compare two or more things so in this case two or more arms of a study uh, where the outcomes are different, say you know, s say for instance, in, well, you know, say for instance in this study, that the uh, the number of patients who were free of relapse at uh, at three years was forty percent in one arm and thirty five percent in the other arm. You might look at that and say, well, is that does that reflect a real difference in how these two arms are doing, or is it possible that just because of the random play of chance, you might have a, a slight difference between the two arms? You know, you can you can easily imagine that two comparable groups are not going to be you know exactly the same in their outcomes. So a p-value uh, represents a, a statistical uh, well un an underlying statistical model of what those two arms are like and whether or not the difference between them is likely to have arisen by chance or likely to represent a true difference between those two arms. And the p-value itself is a probability. So, uh, so for instance, if, if, if the study was to say, you know, there's a, a survival difference between these two arms, p-value equals 0 0.05, what that means is if these two arms are actually the same, you would only expect to see this difference 5% of the time or less often, okay? So, and, and that p-value of 0 0.05 is, is uh, there's nothing magical about it, but we in, in kind of medicine have arbitrarily said that a study that, uh, that a difference between two groups with a p-value of less than 0 0.05 will be considered significant, whereas uh, a difference that does not achieve that uh, degree of statistical certainty is, is not statistically significant. And so my math is not... Uh it's not as strong as yours. Uh, uh, so a p-value there of 0 0.05. Yes. My understanding, uh, correct me if I'm going wrong here, is that if you did the study 20 times, 19 out of 20, point zero five is 1 20th of 1, 100%. Sure. Uh, so 19 out of 20 times you could expect a similar result and but maybe one out of 20 you're going to get that result and it'll be by chance yeah yeah i would twist it the other way around i would say that if you conducted the study 20 times and there was actually no difference between the arms in one out of the 20 studies you might have seen such a okay. difference arising purely because of, by chance yeah. so as the p-value gets smaller yeah. the chance of it arising that the the, the odds of that result are arising by chance become very very small agreed right okay okay so br10 and so that we adopted that into practice and we're still yeah. doing that now chemotherapy after uh, after surgery for for these uh, for a, a group of lung cancer patients and you talk in some of the the tweet threads about the idea of a randomized study being you know the best way sure to to answer a research question and, and that's sort of fairly consistent throughout the month. I, I think if there was one methodologic point I would like people to take home from all of those tweets, it's it's the value of randomization. Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe before I get on to my next question then. Sure. You, why is that? Why, what, what's so special about well, randomization? Because uh, when you're describing a... When you're describing a new treatment or some kind of intervention for people with, uh, with, uh, with cancer, or any medical treatment, I guess... You, you you want not only to describe what happens to people who have that intervention or to people who have that treatment, 
you want some idea of what would have happened had you not given them that treatment, right? So it's not just to describe what happened, but you know what would have happened if you had done something else. That's really the only way, you know, having some sort of comparator group is the only way to, to demonstrate the value of a, of a treatment or an intervention. And the best comparator group is, is a comparator group that is done, that comes from randomization. You could imagine other things. You could imagine, for instance, treating a bunch of people in some way and then comparing them to people who had the same kind of cancer and were treated two years ago or five years ago or treated in another hospital in a different way or something like that. But there's all kinds of biases uh, that might be apparent or, or invisible that get introduced with that sort of thing. In a randomized trial, you take people who are eligible for the study and then with essentially a flip of a coin, although it's there's not literally a coin, they are randomized to one of two treatments. By doing that, provided you have enough people in your study, the two arms are very, very similar in their characteristics, okay? So you have two completely comparable groups with the only difference between them, hopefully, is that one of the group got the intervention and the other did not. So it's a way of sort of assessing this counterfactual. What would have happened to this same population of patients without this intervention? Well, that's what the, the control arm is for. And uh, that's pretty well established now, I think, in, in, the, in the medical world that a randomized trial in, in most circumstances is, is an effective way to, to do things. You would think so. But there's, uh, there are always, I find, uh, threats to randomization. I would say there, there are situations where people have advocated that a treatment is so obviously efficacious that it would be unethical to do a randomized trial. I, I think that's hardly ever the case, but you will definitely hear people arguing that. There is a new kind of enthusiasm for what are called constructed control arms. So that is to say control arms of patients that are maybe pulled out of databases or from administrative data. And I think it is, to me, unlikely that those will be uh, as appropriate a control as a, as a proper randomized control arm. And I think we'll probably come back in another episode to that concern about single arm studies that you sure. that you had. You. Uh, for people who are following along, November 28th was where uh, was that topic particularly came up. But a few days before that, November 25th, you, you talked about uh, a study or a publication called the LACE Meta-Analysis. Sure. And in one of the tweets in that thread, you, you sort of suggested that you'd randomization, as you've just just very elegantly described, as you know, a very f formidable and, and robust way to answer a scientific question. But you sort of hinted that actually a meta-analysis might be even better. Well... I would not say that a ran, that a meta-analysis replaces randomization, but rather in the the levels of of evidence, you know, things that you can be uh, uh, confident in. Yes, you have a very high level of confidence in a randomized control trial. A meta-analysis is a way of formally combining multiple trials to analyze sort of a combined result. And uh, I suppose a meta-analysis of well-conducted randomized, of you know, several well-conducted randomized trials, it gives an additional level of of confidence above any of those uh, trials individually. Yeah. So November twenty fifth, then the, the lace meta-analysis. What was that about? Yeah. Was it, so the I don't lace. Think it's about. Uh, it's not about the material, is it? For <laughs> no, no. So the yeah. So lace uh, stands for lung adjuvant uh, cisplatin evaluation, I believe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it is a it is a meta-analysis that combines the Canadian adjuvant study as well as uh, five or six other adjuvant studies with similar designs. So this was a, 
this was a question this question of adjuvant chemotherapy is something that was uh, quite topical in the early 2000s and so in addition to the Canadian trial there was a there was an American trial there was a, a Europe one sort of pan-european study there was a UK study there was a what we might call rest of world study uh, so so several of these studies reported results around the same time they had a similar design to the Canadian study we just mentioned half of you know some patients being randomized to surgery alone others being randomized to some kind of chemotherapy afterwards I think the aggregate results in the in the meta-analysis sort of reinforce the findings of the of the Canadian study in in demonstrating a improvement in, in overall survival and, and cure rates Okay, so I don't think we're going to we'll go into that one too much because that, that's really about the idea of a meta-analysis. Yeah. But there have been two other adjuvant studies in the last couple of years that have been very important that you highlighted. One of them was is called the Adora study, and that was yep. your November 14th tweet. And then your your final tweet on November 30th was was a study that's just, just presented yep. uh, six months ago it, it called Empower 10. And they were now looking to improve on chemotherapy um, sure. by adding newer treatments. Yeah. So uh, j maybe just briefly you could s tell us what uh, what those were, and then we'll get into, I guess, the con the controversy of, of are we interpreting these too soon? Sure. Yeah, so I think, you know, the way that we're, we're moving through these trials is is one way of doing it. We were kind of going through it stage by stage, you know, screening early stage, and, and we'll move on to later stage. Another kind of way of putting together all the history of these trials that, I, that sort of struck me as I was putting them together was this idea that lung cancer treatment has really kind of come in three waves. There was a wave of, of first chemotherapy, uh, and then targeted therapies with what we call tyrosine kinases, TKIs, for specific mutations and then immunotherapies, you know, these, these three sort of waves of, of different uh, treatment modalities. And they all start in the metastatic setting and gradually work their way towards uh, earlier stage disease. So for chemotherapy, that maybe happened between like 1986 and 2004, something like that. Uh, for TKIs, maybe between 2007 and, and uh, you know, now we're seeing adjuvant studies. Adora just came out in, in 2020, I think. And immunotherapy as well, really you know, burst on the scene in maybe 2015 and just now starting to get the earliest uh, earliest data for early stage lung cancer with immunotherapy. So so these two studies that you mentioned, these these uh, early stage adjuvant studies, um, so Adora is of a, uh, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor uh, called osimertinib or Tegreso. Uh, it is used in the treatment of people whose lung cancer has a mutation in the gene EGFR. And the Empower 10 study is a, a study of an immunotherapy, but again, with a similar design. So as, as the adjuvant studies we've been talking about. So people had previously had surgery, their cancer was completely removed, and these treatments were given after surgery with the idea of hopefully uh, eliminating microscopic disease. Right. Yeah. So, so both of them, uh, you know, have been covered actually in, in uh, and go again to Lung Cancer Canada website, some of the... the best of um, sort of what's new in lung cancer webinars which have covered some of these topics as well as uh, as some previous podcasts both of them the adora and the empower 10 have shown um, significant improvements and we've talked about p-values and uh, you know significant p-values for what's called disease-free survival so uh, a significant reduction in seeing the lung cancer come back by a certain time point 
But you talk in your tweets about how disease-free survival is not usually what we look at as a win for adjuvant treatments. So maybe what what do we normally look at would be the sure. first question. And then is is this disease-free survival a, a good enough alternative? Yeah, and that is a that is a great question. The the Adora trial in particular has uh, promoted a lot of or, or, or uh, engendered a lot of debate. Uh, among uh, among lung cancer docs in our clinic and and on Twitter and and in the wider world, and and maybe the methodologic point this gets back to is the idea of a primary outcome. You know, a randomized clinical trial should have a a single defined endpoint that is stated in advance. You know, what is what will this trial be considered a success? If it meets, or or, or what uh, what criteria has to be met for this trial to be successful? And you're right. So the outcome that has been reported for these two studies is something called the disease-free survival. How long did people go without their cancer ne- without their cancer recurring? The historically the usual outcome that we've looked at in adjuvant studies has been overall survival. What is the total duration of time that people live after their surgery? So that was the that was the kind of threshold for the adjuvant chemotherapy trials, like the Canadian trial we were talking about, and and all the trials in the LACE meta analysis. I suppose the idea is, you know, if you had a if you had a drug that you gave in the adjuvant setting that delayed recurrence, but didn't actually make people live any longer, you know, because perhaps giving the drug in the adjuvant setting means that the cancer is resistant to that drug when it eventually recurs, and and so people have a shorter survival after recurrence. The question is, is that good enough, you know? And I don't think this is a settled question at all. I suppose that if you have, you know, you, you can, I can understand the argument on either side, you know. If a treatment is really useful, it ought to make people live longer. On the other hand, additional time without recurrence is probably of value, even even if people do not ultimately live longer at the end of the day, having a longer period of time without their cancer having recurred is likely of value. So it is something that people debate. The FDA has uh, issued guidance recently, like in the last couple of weeks, about disease-free survival being an acceptable outcome in adjuvant trials. So I think the uh, the field is moving towards that. Interesting, because I guess on the flip side, you could say, well, if you know that you don't do these treatments because you can sort of catch up on someone's longevity by tr- using the same drug. If there's a recurrence, recurrence, the disadvantage of giving it up front is you're exposing a lot of people to a drug and potential side effects when they name for a group of people who are cured with surgery anyway and may never have needed yeah, it. That's an excellent point. Thank you for making that. Because you're right. In the adjuvant setting, many of these people are already cured by their surgery. So giving them giving them this drug cannot, you know, cannot help them. And so reserving the drug at the time of recurrence spares people who were never going to recur from that toxicity as well, right? So that's uh, that's also an aspect of this discussion. So I, I hope you've all been following along this uh, these uh, discussions we're having in this particular debate, very topical in lung cancer, disease-free survival or overall survival, and hopefully you found that helpful. We will come back for a third discussion with Dr. Nicholas on some of the other trials that he highlighted in advanced lung cancer in the next Lung Cancer Voices episode so please join us again for that thanks to our producer ryan mullen please send us your feedback like and follow us 
on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore Can, and on Instagram at LungCancerCanada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at lungcancercanada.ca.